We live in a time where you can get your hands on multiple different translations of the Bible, and this is a gift. But it should also remind us that translating the scriptures is a complex process. It's not a simple mapping of one language to another, particularly when equivalent English words don't exist, cultural idioms don't make sense to us, or there are debates about the meanings of ancient words. There's an element of interpretation involved by the translators, and in this episode of Theodisc, I'm delighted to speak with Scott McKnight about his new translation of the New Testament, with a particular focus on helping us rehear the text we think we're so familiar with, at least in English. Scott McKnight earned his PhD from the University of Nottingham, has been a professor for over three decades, and is a world-renowned speaker, writer, and equipper of the church. He's a recognized authority on the historical Jesus, early Christianity, and the New Testament, and has written multiple books, including his recent publication, The Second Testament, a new translation of the New Testament. And it's this translation we spoke about. I'm your host, Kenny Innes, and I'm aiming to have accessible but rich conversations with theologians that will help challenge your thinking and develop your understanding. Please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you listen and share with your friends. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Scott McKnight. Okay, well, I'm delighted to have Scott McKnight on our podcast today. Welcome, Scott. Thank you for being on the Theodisc podcast. Well, thank you, Kenny. And it's nice to hear a Scottish accent. You sound like my grandpa, who was from Fife. <laughs> and I can't do the Scottish accent very well. <laughs> I like him already. Uh, you just have to pretend like you're clearing your throat. It's not It's not that much different from German, really. So. <laughs> oh, it's not that easy. <laughs> He, my grandpa used to always say, "Dinner be so deaf, Scott." <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right. That sounds about right. <laughs> well, we're going to be talking about your latest work here today, Scott, um, the Second Testament, which is your translation of the New Testament. But before we get into that proper, um, I'm going to subject you to the three questions that every first-time guest has to answer when they come on the podcast. Okay. And so we're going to be looking at your new project, but I want to know a little bit about what are some of the constants, the things that you return to in your life. So the three categories are a book. You cannot choose the Bible for that, okay? And you can't even break down books of the Bible. So something other than the Bible, um, a food or a meal that you return to, and a place that you return to. So let's go for the first one, a book. Okay. I am not one who rereads books mm -hmm. constantly. You know, I don't go back to books, but uh, I would say C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. I read it often, read a couple pages at a time, sometimes before I begin writing, just to get the prose there. So let me just say I return to C.S. Lewis, okay? Now, food, risotto, Italian risotto. I used to think it was the greatest thing on earth, but now I've learned that carbohydrates are not as good for you. So Is that right? <laughs> I have to squeeze. I have to squeeze the situations uh, toward risotto at times. Uh, so I love being in, in Europe where I can do it. And, and a third place... Um, uh, a place to return um, the country. I like to be in the country. We live in a suburb. It's busy. It's noisy. But uh, I like to travel into the country to see the farms, see the lakes, the rivers, 
the woods. So I'd like to say Greece, but I haven't been that many times. <laughs> but I love it. Awesome. Well, thank you. That's great to hear that. And yeah. now we know you a little bit. Yeah. But really what we want to talk about today is the art of Bible translation and this um, translation that you've just released in the Second Testament. I just got my copy in this week, um, fresh off the press, and have really enjoyed digging into it. And I just wanted to hear a little bit about kind of what your motivation was behind this translation project. And maybe we can start digging into how it might differ some from other Bible translations that we might be familiar with. Well, um, at one point, Tom Wright, uh, whom I'm, I'm guessing many people who will know, uh, was translating the New Testament uh, every morning or whenever he was doing these, these books, and then he would uh, produce a little daily reflection that came out as the Bible for everyone, mm -hmm. I believe. Yep. So yep. he did the whole New Testament. And uh, then eventually they took all the translations and turned it into a New Testament, the Kingdom New Testament. Then John Goldingay, an Old Testament professor who was uh, I knew I met when I was a student at the University of Nottingham in England. Uh, he was at St. John's College. Um, he was then he then moved to the United States and taught at Fuller Theological Seminary. He did the Old Testament to correspond to John to Tom Wright. Well, I wasn't, I, I have to admit, I wasn't keeping up daily with John Golden Gay's uh, newest translations and newest commentaries, but he did the same project. When they were when they were done, uh, I believe it was SPCK, so so someone may correct me on that. Put them together as a Bible. I think they called it the Bible for everyone. That's right. Yep. And I bought a copy. Uh, I love John Golden Gay's Old Testament stuff. I love his forthrightness and clarity, ability to think in terms of the ancient world. And I began to read it carefully. And I had already read all of Tom Wright's, or most of Tom Wright's Kingdom New Testament. And when I began to read John Golden Gay, I said, these two translations do not belong together. Yeah. And it wasn't, it wasn't like it was a criticism. I loved both of them. But um, okay, so then I bought a copy of the new single volume, Golden Gay from InterVarsity, and I was at the academic meetings, and I bumped into the main editor, academic editor at InterVarsity. And he asked me what I thought of Golden Gay. I said, I love it. I said, but I said that the, the translation of Golden Gay and the translation of Tom Wright don't belong in the same bound together as England. He said, why is that? I said, well, two completely different approaches to translation. And he said, what do you think should be done? Because InterVarsity in the United States owned the rights to the Old Testament, but didn't own Tom Wright's. That was owned, it's owned by Zondervan now. And I, I said, well, someone needs to translate the, the New Testament to correspond to John Golden Gay's uh, First Testament. He said, would you like to do it? I said, yes. <laughs> and it was, it was, that, that was the that extent easy. of the conversation. I thought, yeah, I'd love to do this because 
there's something about uh, the, the his translation that is unlike any other translation of the Old Testament, and it will help Bible readers think about what the Bible actually says. So, so I did that. So you you've asked, you know, how this differs. I um, I was uh, talking yesterday on a podcast, which seems to be my daily activity in the afternoon. Um, You're welcome. <laughs> yes. Uh, I was talking to a professional Bible translator, and uh, he asked me what my theory was. And I, I'll explain the two, the two uh, reigning theories of translation in a second. But I said, I look at my translation as an untranslation. So there is there are some translations are, are called word for word or a formal equivalent translation and other translations are thought for thought or a dynamic translations and in the thought for thought or dynamic the idea is to evoke in the current reader of English the same experience that was evoked in the original Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic text the formal translation is not so, or the word for word, is not so concerned with that. It's not so concerned with having the same response, but um, creating as close a replica of the original Greek text as can be given and still make sense in English. So my translation, I, you know, I didn't sit down and say, I'm going to have a formal equivalent or a dynamic equivalent. My goal was to evoke for people today who are Bible readers already, so they read the NIV or the New Living Translation or the New English Bible, whatever it is, they read it, and um, they're familiar with it. I'm trying to provide a supplemental translation for those who are familiar with the Bible that will slow them down and give them a closer feel to how the Greek text actually looks. So it's, I, I like to say, it's it's not going to feel Englishy at times. It's going to feel a bit clunky and choppy and chunky, and that's okay, uh, because you'll go, oh, what what is he saying here? And slowing down, wondering uh, what this is saying, uh, will create a different experience in reading the Bible, and I hope a sharper understanding. But more importantly, it's going to it's going to make people compare what I translated with what they're familiar with, and try to um, wedge them away from the familiar to hear it in a slightly different way, which will, I think, expand their understanding of the Bible. I had to laugh because I was reading an article about. Um approaches and um and in the they were going back and forth about you know between formal equivalence and dynamic equivalence and they were critiquing the formal equivalent equivalence approach and saying um you know sometimes it can lead us into meaningless phrases that that are a bit clunky like first peter 113 do we really want to translate that as gird up the loins of your mind and so I thought, I wonder how Scott has translated that. So I just, <laughs> I turned to it and your your translation is, therefore, surrounding your mental waste. 
<laughs> and I had to laugh, you know, at that um, because you've really you've you've done what Robert Alter talks about. He says that translation is an endless series of compromises. It looks like in many places you've really resisted the the temptation to compromise and try to stick quite closely to what's in, in the Greek there. Yeah, and and some translation theorists uh, would say that the I mean, it's, this has been said many times. It's said in in Italian. Um, that the translator is a traitor. Yeah. Uh, and that, and there's something to that is that when you translate a text, you are moving the text from one world into another world. And you can't take that whole world with you. Uh, and I'm, I'm not criticizing Tom Wright or the NIV or your favorite translation at all. I'm, I'm perfectly fine with that. I often tell my students uh, and I, they ask me about the Bible every time I teach a class, you know, what's your favorite translation? I say, these major translations that we have in English today are all reliable. They're helpful. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with them in that sense. So, I, And I'm not saying this is the way we should have translations. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying this translation will help you understand your translation better. And then... Uh, Kenny, the other side of it is those who are studying Greek and are translating a passage in uh, in Greek, let's say they're translating Ephesians, they're going to love my translation because I give them a lot simpler. Um, it's almost transparent to what the Greek text looks like. Right. And is it fair to say that when you have the established translations, is there a sense that there is not just a, an attempt to be faithful to the Greek text, but there's also a history of English translation that needs to be considered as well? And is that um, was that an issue for you when you were coming to translate this and um, thinking about the way that we have become familiar with, with oh, the way it's been translated in English? You've nailed it. The, the biggest problem me in translating the New Testament was familiarity. It was very difficult not to just write out what I knew that text said in something like modern English that would sound a little bit like the NIV or the RSV or whichever translation. I'm a, I've used the NRSV in classes for many years. So um, familiarity is a really big issue. And the more familiar, familiar we are with the text, the less we will hear the text. And so I'm trying to disrupt familiarity with the text and slow people down, break down their um, assumptions so that they will, will hear the text afresh as if for the first time. Yeah, and, and when I was reading that, I kept hitting these different words that you were using that would cause me to stop. So, for instance, you translate kingdom as empire, yeah. which I thought was a really a really interesting choice. Um, gospel becomes a verb yeah. in places like um, uh, like Luke 4. Um, freedom, which is a word that we just kind of use all the time, you translate as release. Overseers are mentors. <laughs> I just, yeah, it was yeah. really... And, it, and I also loved kind of some of the playfulness. So... Although we're talking here about having kind of have a close um, 
faithfulness to the Greek text, I did love where you were, you you would do things like so John the Baptist is Johannes the Dipper, which I just <laughs> I I love that. Um, and Luke six in the Beatitudes in Luke six, you you replaced woe is with oi. <laughs> oi, yeah, yeah. Well, these were yeah, every one of these, you know. Okay, you're you know you're having a good time with this, and I'm I'm sitting here thinking, do you know how long it took me to? <laughs> To come to con- the conclusion that that's the word I'm going to use. Yeah. Uh, so there were a, there were a lot of uh, a lot of decisions to be made. Here, here's something that I, I hope uh, readers will appreciate. I did my best to use the same English word for the same Greek word throughout the entire New Testament, and of course, it's not always possible. But I tried to do this. So one of my editors early on, first, uh, uh, the second editor I had, there there was complications with editors because of jobs and job changes. But uh, she she said, I'm not too crazy about how you've translated this word here. And it was Matthew 12 or something. And I said, this word occurs in the New Testament 73 times. I don't I know exactly what it was. I said, and you have to look up every one of them and decide which word fits that Greek word. And she said, well, I'm not doing that. That's your job. I said, okay, so basically you can leave alone my word choices. And she said, yes. And and this is true, is that I tried to keep these words similar. And I fought with myself and I fought with the text and familiarity to try to find words that were accurate, but that... um, would not be so familiar that people would just slide over the meaning of words, like empire. All right, this is the Greek word basileia. All right, I I think the word kingdom for most people is just, okay, it's a really cool word. Everybody likes the kingdom. They don't like the church. So, you know, kingdom is cool. Kingdom means social justice. Kingdom means doing good in the public sector. Okay. Um. I know that the Greek Greek word basileia is used throughout Josephus, for instance, a very contemporary uh, writer in Greek to the New Testament itself. For people like King Herod, King Agrippa, Archelaus even, they're kings and they have a kingdom. A king is someone who has a kingdom. A kingdom is someone who has a king. And they are connected to Rome in the Holy Land, if, if we can use that expression. So for the world of Jesus to all of a sudden talk about the kingdom, it's like a political takeover, you know, not a coup d'etat by the use of violence and weapons, but they want to run Israel. They want to be in charge. Jesus wants to be in charge. So, and then Jesus calls his kingdom in Mark's gospel, the kingdom of God. Now, that is an interesting choice, because kingdom of God is not an expression in the Old Testament, but kingdom of the Lord is used twice in Chronicles. All right, so big deal. How many people knew that that expression was used in Hebrew and in Chronicles? You know, not very many. So it's not like this is a a familiar language. Jesus says that this is going to be the kingdom of God. It's sort of like someone who has been to seminary who shows up in your church is the new pastor and says, we're not going to have anybody called pastor or elder or deacon or mentor 
or bishop, Jesus is going to be in charge of the church. You go, how's that going to work? Well, Jesus wants God to be in charge of the people of Israel. And that's the language he uses. Now, the, and, and he believes that this God is the God of all creation. So the closest word to kingdom that I could find that corresponds to that world of Jesus was empire. So that's why I chose empire. And uh, I think Jesus is also saying about the Roman leaders, Antipas in Galilee, Tiberius in Rome, and Pilate in Caesarea Maritima, he's saying, no, God is in charge. And the only word big enough to be in charge of all that is the word empire. So that's why I chose it. It made me think, you know, all of our programs at WTC are in kingdom theology, and I thought we might need to change that to God's empire theology. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're going to get people's attention with that word, and that's, that's a good thing. Certainly. I think kingdom is too... It has become almost uh, just a flabby, squishy word for people today. So mm-hmm. I'm glad you use empire. So let's talk about maybe another couple of examples. Um, one is in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, um, which is a passage that has been you know, pulled from pillar to post in the way it's been spoken about and, um, and exegeted. Um, and you approach this passage with what looks like uh, a subtle change, but maybe we can talk about that. You know, what we would be more familiar with would be blessed are, um, but you you do that, you change that to God blesses. Um, so I thought that was interesting. The first feels kind of passive or, or indicates maybe an existing status, but the way you translate it as God blesses um, seems to indicate kind of God's movement towards or what what they're described as being you know the blessing they're described as having as a as a result of what god is of how god is moving towards them how, what were you thinking about when you when you translated it that way what was i thinking about <laughs> i was thinking about the abundance of uses of this term in the hebrew speaking aramaic speaking world in the old testament and the words that are tra- you know that translate like this is the Greek word makarios, um, and it could translate um, baruch in in Hebrew. It could translate ashrei. So, um, I I I studied one time the whole summer the Beatitudes, and mostly just the meaning of this word. And I am I'm utterly convinced that the blessing here is the favor of God upon a person. It is not simply like this common English Bible, which I really like, translates it happy. And I've seen other people, I think it's an English translation. I mean, UK translation that has the word fortunate. Uh, You know, there's a Greek word for that, eudaimonia. uh, And that's not the word that, uh, that the New Testament writers use. They use makarios. And it's a blessing of God upon a person because they trust in God, they walk in the way of God, and they are experiencing the downside, the underside of society uh, because of their faithfulness. But yet, the promise from God for them is that they are the ones who will inherit the kingdom. And I think when Jesus was done, 
I can imagine this hill because this is when you go to Israel, they take you up on the Mount of Beatitudes. <laughs> so I don't know if that we don't know if that's it, but that's a pretty good candidate, uh, probably in that area. So um, I, I think that the people who heard Jesus say this, like the like the disciples, would have looked around and said, "What about us? You didn't mention us." And I think Jesus is saying, you're, you're getting the point, is that this, this work of God in the kingdom, this blessing, is surprising everyone because of the people who are responding to it. And these are the sorts of people groups that are responding to me and to the kingdom offer. So come along. It's, it's that sort of, uh, and so I, I think it's, I think blessed is too impersonal. And yes, the word God is not there in the Greek text. But I think it's implicit in the one who is doing the blessing. So I, I put God blesses. And I hope uh, I hope some people say, this helped me see where this blessing is coming from. That's great. I want to jump to a different one because I know we're kind of hopping around a little bit here, but this one is of particular interest because when I turned to 1 Corinthians 11 and I, I saw that you had embedded in the text mm. the kind of quotation back and forth between Paul and the and the church in Corinth. For those of you who know, who are listening and have read Lucy's book, um, Rediscovering Scripture's Vision for Women, um, that's one thing she argues. She's not alone in arguing it, but she argues that Paul is responding back and forth and because of the way the Greek is written, we don't have quotation marks. Um, so it was interesting to see that you reflected that same approach in your translation. Um, so maybe we can talk through, through that decision. <laughs> um. I'm just looking to see where this note is in the text. Do you see First uh, Corinthians? You mean the footnote? Oh, it's for, you said eleven, chapter fourteen. Is that what you're talking about, chapter fourteen? No, you do you do it in eleven as well. Okay, yes, in eleven and in fourteen. Okay, yeah. now I got to tell you the truth. This is the truth. <laughs> I, I was influenced by Lucy Pepiot's first book in the sense of, I, I don't teach 1 Corinthians. Uh, it's never been a, a book that I've taught, you know, for a whole semester. I always taught the Gospels and other people taught the other parts of the New Testament. But I, I've taught Paul and I've taught Romans. But um, when I read her first book, I said, you know, I know about this stuff, but I have to make a decision. I have to decide what I believe. And so I worked with her stuff, the people she mentioned. I read other things, and I, I worked on this text hard. And I think, I think that her case, her argument, is this text does not make sense if Paul is responsible for all of it. He's speaking out of two sides of his mouth. Well, Paul in 1 Corinthians especially is frequently quoting people. And, and most translations actually do this. You know, they'll just put something in quotation marks and you wonder, well, where'd they get those quotation marks? Well, they think Paul is actually quoting somebody. And Paul does this. Uh, he even mentions, I'm responding to people who've asked questions. So her approach, I think, is very reasonable. 
And so I tried it on uh, years ago, and I have read the text this way many times. And so when I did the translation, I reworked it again, and I came up with this conclusion. And I sent it to Lucy and to Nick to see if I got their view right, his or her view right. <laughs> and I got a little blessing and no oy uh, when, <laughs> when she read it. So, and that's also the case in, for, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, yes, I, um, I explicitly have entered into that text and tried to make sense of it the way I think it reads in the Greek text. That's interesting because you've made that decision there as a translator. And I think there are decisions that translators make that have consequences for people, how people see themselves or how people understand God sees them. So I can think of places where where issues are in women are translated in particular ways. So that's happened in 1 Corinthians there. And I wonder if we could talk a little bit about that, about the... um, the importance or maybe sometimes the weaponizing of words or translations, how they can have a, a detrimental effect. I was I was reading an article by or an essay by um Musa Dube and she talked about translations in Botswana where they would translate the word demon and they would translate it for the word that uh, that equates to ancestors for people in that culture. So every time you would see the words for demon in the New Testament text, it would be their ancestor. So Jesus casts out the ancestors from the demoniac and sends them over the hill. So these are their choices that translators get yeah. to make. And um, yeah, I wonder if we could just kind of speak into that yeah. a little bit. These are, these are translations that you, uh, you feel the weight of these kinds of decisions. I didn't make this decision lightly and thought, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to show these people what's going on at all. I, uh, it was easy to avoid this and just let the text be confusing. But I chose to pay attention to what's going on uh, in this text in light of some what people are saying as, you know, in the scholarly world. And so um, I made decisions. I put it in brackets um, where I think it's Paul and where I think it's Paul's opponents. And I, I try to make sense of it that way. Um, one of the uh, one of the most important things about, I mean, it, w- when we do enter into the text, we do render judgments. And I'll give you another illustration in this text because it matters so much. All right. In 1 Corinthians eleven sixteen, I translate, if someone looks to be argumentative, we don't have any such custom about this. And neither do God's assemblies. Now, you know, a lot of translations translate, we don't have any other custom. Well, any other custom means, by golly, you better agree with me. But at the end of this verse, Paul says, you know, we don't really have a custom on this one. So in a sense, do what you want. But this, I gave you my viewpoint. That really matters in the translation. One of them is, Everybody disagrees with you, which is a threat. Mm-hmm. And the other one is nobody has come to a conclusion on this. It's completely up for grabs. 
And uh, I had a really pious professor when I was a uh, first-year seminary. I, I, it wasn't my first year, but it was the first teacher I had in seminary. Pious man, gentle, lovely guy. And I went into his office one day and asked him what this verse means. And I said, why, why do people translate this any other custom? And he just looked at me, pulled out his Greek New Testament, and translated it just about the way I have. And he said, I think Paul is saying, do whatever the H you want. <laughs> I went, oh, I didn't expect that out of you, but uh, okay. All right. And, and there is that sort of um, sense about the text. We don't have a custom on this. And um, it really matters if you translate it the one way or the other. So... Well, yeah, as a, 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 my family grew up, you know, in a, a church tradition, the women had to wear head coverings every Sunday to church, you know, and that's... Plymouth, Plymouth Brethren. Yeah. E.F.F. Bruce from Elgin. <laughs> there you go, that's right. So, there are people listening to this who don't, um, who don't speak Greek, don't read Greek. You have said that this um, translation that you've worked on is a supplement to other translations that are already existing, English translations that are in existence. Um, how, uh, what can you say to people who think, well, I, I can't enter into Greek like Scott can. Um, so how do I think about this idea that, you know, we've been speaking this conversation that there are choices that people have to make. So all of our English translations are in a sense an interpretation at some level. We know that there are scholars who are working hard, they're dedicated, they're trying to get to the core of what the text says, but there's still an interpretive element in there. So how, what would you say to people who are thinking, oh, this feels a little bit uncertain when I'm approaching my, my biblical text now, um, that there are all these kind of decisions that need to be made? Well, I would, I would say to them, I, I know the experience. I felt that too uh, when I was first reading the Bible. Is that is it only the pastor who understands this stuff really well? Uh, so I would say uh, th that's a very common experience, and and it's okay to feel that way. Um, the second thing I would say is, but we have to face the reality that all translation involves interpretation. Uh, if you learned German, you learned the Greek, the German word Gemütlichkeit. And there is no English translation that works for that. So you can say Thanksgiving or uh, what do you call it? What, you know, Thanksgiving, harvest day dinner feeling when you're laying on the couch and you had so much potatoes and gravy and meat that you just want to go to sleep. You've got tryptophan on, in your system. That is... That's sort of what Gemütlichkeit feels. Mm -hmm. uh, or you can say comfort. Uh, so in other words, we are going to interpret. And so that would be the second. The third thing is, is um, compare translations. And, and you can trust your own judgment in reading these translations to say, you know, this helps me and this helps me. And this one didn't help me so much. That's okay for where you are right now. But then the fourth thing I'd say is, if you can't read Greek, you're not an expert on the text. So don't get too dogmatic about what, what's going on. Respect people who do know Greek 
And that would be my last point is uh, go to people who can read the, the Greek text, ask them questions. And in general, most of those people are going to be fair-minded with what that text actually says. They may be pushing you for their own reading, but uh, get, get to where you find some people that you can trust to help you understand the text. Scott, thank you for spending the time with us and talking through this. I really enjoyed what little I've been able to read of of the Second Testament so far. I found it joyous and challenging and jarring and uh, gave me some fresh perspective on some text. And I really would encourage people to to have a look at it when they're when they're reading the Bible as just a, a, a different angle um, to shake up that familiarity that you spoke about earlier that we have. But I really appreciate you taking the time um, to come and join us today. Well, thank you, Kenny. It's good to be with you and to be with all the people at Westminster Theological Center, one of my favorite places. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you to Scott and Kenny for helping us to see familiar passages in the New Testament from a fresh perspective. We'll be having a competition soon on social media where we'll be giving away a copy of Scott McKnight's The Second Testament, so do keep an eye out for that one. In our next episode, Kenny will be chatting with Dr. Carmen Imes, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Biola University, about being God's image. Carmen is a well-renowned Old Testament scholar with many publications behind her name, and Kenny even admitted to having a few butterflies in his stomach before this interview. Theodisc is part of WTC, a theological college that seeks to partner with the church through equipping and sending the whole people of God. Our innovative hub model allows you to study on any of our part-time programs without leaving your work or ministry. Come and find out more at wtctheology.org.uk. Thank you for listening to episode 21 of Theodisc. Join us for episode 22 with Carmen Imes on Being God's Image. Bye for now.